Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths or STEM an opportunity to be honest and open about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door, or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my TV work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's that off air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. It's my hope that you really relate to what's shared with you today and that you're as inspired, supported and comforted as I always am when I chat with my amazing guests. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even leave some comments and reviews. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of paleontology. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you this morning? I guess afternoon for you. Yeah, there's a bit of a time difference. <laughs> Just a little. Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, come on this show and share with us your experiences being a woman in STEM. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. I I must admit, I don't know much about paleontology. I just know that it's a lot of vowels all squashed together in the same word. Um, (laughs) Oh, that's a very good way to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it? So it's the study of ancient life. So about everything you can imagine in the ancient world, a paleontologist can study it. So that goes from microscopic cells in the fossil record all the way up to the biggest things that ever lived Um, and everything in between, including climate and ecosystems and if you look at the modern world, you can pretty much so reflect that back into the fossil record and study that wow. in ancient okay. times. And so were you a kid that was obsessed with dinosaurs? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jurassic Park. I really? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I saw Jurassic Park and it was amazing. And I'm pretty sure I was already into dinosaurs before that came out. But that kind of just solidified it for me. I was like, oh my gosh. And they even had a woman in the movie that was a scientist. And mm. so it's a wonder I didn't become a paleobotanist actually. So um, I, yeah, I was a, I, I was a big, a big ancient life nerd. I collected fossils when I was younger, um, little seashells and stuff. And it was, it was so much fun. And that just kind of kept me, kept me going. And it kept, it did keep going into your adult life, clearly. Um, it's so interesting mm-hmm. how kids are absolutely fascinated with um, those kind of subjects. My nephew, who's four, is really into dinosaurs at the moment. Oh, yeah. Why, why do people have this fascination? I think it's because they're just not around anymore. Like we have evidence that they were here, but we can't see them. There's so much curiosity with dinosaurs in in particular. They were big. They seemed aggressive. They had, some of them had giant teeth. Some of them had extremely long necks. I mean, they look so bizarre compared to anything that's alive today. And I think it just 
captures that imagination, you know, like, oh, I can dream up this stuff, but I don't need to because it lived on this planet already. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I did not get into dinosaurs and and scary things like that um, at all. Um, So it's just fascinating to get an insight into an area that a lot of kids get really obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really amazing. I'll have kids come in and they completely school me on, on dinosaurs. I, I don't study dinosaurs. I've been in the field long enough that I've got a pretty good dinosaur vocabulary, but man, I don't know all of them. And, and they have all their dinosaur books memorized and can say every name. And I'm just in awe of these kids sometimes. Little future paleontologists running around. I hope they keep keep with it. What's life like for a paleontologist? It depends on what area of paleontology you actually go into. So there's the academic route where you go and work at a college or a university and you train more paleontologists, you write grants, you go out into the field, you collect more, you come back and research. There's also the private sector. Um working with private landowners, creating your own excavation companies, and and the private industry kind of gets in to the academic side, and there's some animosity between the two because, you know, the private sector is looking to make money, not to publish papers. But And then there's also the field that I'm kind of in is the behind-the-scenes paleontology. So managing a fossil collection, I make sure that that collection is accessible to researchers all around the world. So if you didn't have the money to fly to your field area and there is a museum that has a great collection of specimens from that area, maybe you could visit that museum or that collection could send you those specimens on loan. So that's where I'm at. I I, I think of myself as a, a facilitator of science. I, I keep all of these specimens safe so people in the future or, you know, presently can can study this material without having to go collect more. Or maybe the locality doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe it's a parking lot now. Um, so so collections are very important to kind of keep those sites safe uh, for researchers. Right. And it really is a field of science that is just pure fascination, wonder and curiosity mm-hmm. right, for the past Oh, oh, a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, traditional paleontology kind of kicked off in the 1800s. Um, and and it's just kind of gotten crazy, it feels like, since then. I mean, just thinking about how much dinosaurs have changed since I was a kid. Um, T-Rex, you know, drug its tail and stood upright and now T-Rex might be slightly feathered and walks completely different and has lips. And it's just a completely different looking creature than when I was a kid. Um, They also, for example, Sue is being remounted. And I think she goes live to the public again this Friday. And Sue is a T-Rex at the Field Museum. And they've remounted her with her gastralia basket. So this is kind of... um, 
almost like a second set of ribs. It's not really a second set of ribs, but um, you have your normal ribs and then there's like this extra set in the front. And when you look at her mounted with a gastralia basket, she looks much more thick, much a much bigger dinosaur around the middle and and reconstructing these dinosaurs humans it's been shown over and over again that we tend to slim down everything it's called the the plastic wrap um and and everything doesn't have enough fat on it and so like we're starting to bulk up our animals adding a nice layer of blubber if if you think about maybe a hippopotamus for example mm. And if we only had the bones and we just reconstructed it, there's a really good chance that we would not add all of that blubber onto it. And it would look like a shrink-wrapped hippopotamus. <laughs> and so we tend to do that in the ancient past. So so uh, Sue is getting thicker. She's getting more full-bodied, um, being more of a, <laughs> a traditional T-Rex. It's so fascinating to think that, you know, as technology advances, we're getting a better idea of what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, But why is it so important to know what happened in the past? Yeah, not only is it just fascinating and it's a fun thought experiment, it also can shine a mirror to current events. Um, The easiest one to look at is ocean acidification, coral bleaching, and corals in particular. So coral have a very long history on this planet, but there's been times where corals appear to almost disappear and they come back. And so we look in the fossil record to see what was the ancient climate like? What was the ancient ocean like? What happened? What was changing that made all these coral disappear? And how did they return? they recover from this? How long did it take them to recover for this? And so a lot of times we can use ancient extinction events or ancient climate change as kind of a proxy to what's going on today. The other thing is, is kind of like knowing your place in the world, knowing where you came from, knowing your evolutionary history. And I really, truly think the more you understand about the past, the more respect you have for the current. So knowing how almost frustrating it is to know that we will probably never know what color a T-Rex was, but knowing that we could go out and watch a bird or an alligator in their natural habitat doing their bird and alligator things, you know, just, just the ability to see life be life instead of looking at these finite resources in the rocks that don't move around and they don't have fat on their bodies and and you you just don't know anything about them um beyond what we can tell from the fossil record and so i always hope that people that get really sucked into the ancient life understand how important modern living creatures are especially extinctions i mean once t-rex was gone it was gone you know once the northern white rhinos are gone they're gone and we can't bring them back. We can never observe them again. Um, And so it, it does two things, you know, it allows us to kind of look at our current situation through an ancient lens that has already happened and also develop and foster more respect for current ecosystems and life. 
Gosh, just in the few minutes we've been talking, I can really understand why you are so into the subject of paleontology. Um, Because I think when you get insights into what may have happened in history, is there like a danger of just becoming really obsessed with it? Yeah, you can lose yourself every once in a while, I think. You get really wrapped up, you know, and 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 each paleontologist works on a tiny little slice of time throughout the 4.6 billion years of Earth history. And you do, you kind of you kind of forget that you're part of the 21st century and not part of the Ordovician 400 million years ago or something. And and what I find most fascinating is coming to terms with deep time. 4.6 billion years is a very long span of time for a human to conceptualize. And you get kind of lost in the numbers as a paleontologist once you get comfortable with 300 million years. It just rolls off the tongue. You're like, oh yeah, that's back in the Carboniferous. Mm-hmm, yep, I know exactly what was going on then. And um, But it's funny, you get really, really comfortable with these big dates, these big ages. But what I find funny is I still have problems with other big numbers, like um, trillions of dollars, for example. That blows my mind. <laughs> like that doesn't compute for me, but I can handle 4.6 billion years. That's like, oh yeah, yeah. When you yeah. when you speak in years, I'm comfortable. But if you if you put like money to that, I'll completely like lose it. I'm just like, no, no, no. Those that does not compute. <laughs> Gosh, that that really is so fascinating because that was kind of my next question is how has studying paleontology affected the way you relate in the real world? Well, not only just not being able to handle <clears throat> large sums of money, but I think that might be just a personal thing for me, um, is that you see everything through the lens of paleontology. I find myself seeing like roadkill and being like, oh no, that's on concrete. That's never going to fossilize, you know, <laughs> or seeing a, a half buried bird on a beach. I'm like, hey, that could be a fossil one of these days or trying to figure out this is a little bit morbid, but figuring out how I'm going to be preserved. Like, how, how am I going to make sure that my body becomes a fossil? And, and that's a weird one. Do you want that? Yes, I do. <laughs> Somehow, some way. I don't know if it was <laughs> technically a fossil or not. If I could really, you know, if I was buried in a mud flow or something, that, that might help. But yeah, part of it is um, like, do I want to be skeletonized? Do I want to be a, a skeleton in a classroom for doctors? Or should I be plastinated so I'm all there? I don't know. It makes you think for the long term, you know, like if you're buried in a wooden, yeah. wooden box, there's there's not a huge chance that you're going to be fossilized. You might, but maybe not, you know. Some of our oldest human specimens, you know, go back about like anatomically human anywhere from 600,000 to 300,000 years. So that's getting pretty far back. And we have some really early hominids and hominins from about three million years. You're like, okay, that's getting pretty old again. But how do you guarantee that your bones will be around for the millions of years? That's the tricky part. (laughs) You must have such a different perspective on death then. 
yeah, I do. Um, paleontology is definitely a study of death. Uh, we hope that these bones that we find were very old animals that had lived a long and wonderful life and then laid down on the side of a creek and passed away very, very nice and peacefully. But that's probably not how like 90% of the fossils are found. Um, some of fossils we know those animals died very tragically. And so um, they left great fossils and that's always like the silver lining. Oh yeah, it's so sad and horrible, but we have these wonderful fossils. Um, but there's always this element of death. It, it surrounds the field. Everything you're looking at is very dead, very, very dead. Um, so what about your relationship with death um, in terms of humans? It's so short, uh, so short. In all the billions of years, we might get 120 if you're like the most lucky person. I guess lucky. If you if you see living to be a ripe old age of 120 as being lucky, then um, then then that's all you got. And so mainly for me, it's just we can look so far back in the past, and I love that. But knowing that someday. I will die and I will not be able to see what happens in the future. Um, that's probably the worst part for me. Like I know death is a part of life and I'm pretty okay with it. I don't have any existential crises about it or anything like that. I, I, I look at dead things all day long. And so um, I don't usually have too big of a problem with death. I try to keep it, you know, not think about it constantly for me as a human that I will die someday. But um, I try to stay kind of above it and and also planning for it. Uh, like I, I do trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my body when I die. Like that helps me personally. The choices that I make might frighten everyone around me. Um, but for me, I just knowing that I can preserve my bones for other people makes it a, an issue that I can wrap my head around for me personally as a human. Yeah. It sounds like it's an issue that doesn't fill you with dread or fear. Not too much. If you, if you catch me on a really emotional day and I start spiraling, it might make me a little emotional, but again, it's mostly just like, I won't ever get to see what the future holds. It's, it's, it's not me right. not being here anymore and, and, and things like that. It's just, I won't know. I won't know. Will we ever be space faring humans? You know, will we ever colonize Mars? I hope that happens in my lifetime, but you know, like, will we ever go to Europa? Will we ever start mining asteroids? What happens when the earth is finally like engulfed by the sun? Will we already be on another planet by then? It's like, I'm just curious to see where the human species goes and, and I'm not going to be able to see that. And so it bums me out. <laughs> Will we speciate again? Not in this body anyway. Exactly. Not in this body. I'm a hundred percent okay with like most creation stories. I think they're great because although, you know, evolution <laughs> and the big bang that, that is a little bit more scientifically accurate, but it's still a creation story. And so, um, I, for one summer, um, I read a lot about native American creation myths and they were just brilliant. I was like, these are so creative, so wonderful to use 
what you see around you to build this story of creation, you know, and I think humans are still doing that only with scientific evidence now, but it's still, it's still fun to think about, like, well, what if, what if our energy is just, you know, recycled? We don't know it. How many times can you recycle energy? Hmm. It's kind of like, um, some religions um, have theories about where mm-hmm. it all began uh, that don't clash with technological and scientific progress. So it sounds like you have a similar kind of approach where it's like you're there collecting data and researching, but um, everything you find doesn't necessarily clash with various theories. No, no, I think sometimes... Uh certain religions and certain certain um stories and things like that can exist in the same space i find science very spiritual like connecting yourself to the world and things that have lived millions of years before you for me that is very spiritual i feel very connected to the earth around me understanding its history um and not thinking that it's a very young planet or flat planet or some other crazy ideas. What I see is crazy ideas, but understanding this long, beautiful, complex history of the earth definitely makes me feel more connected to my own planet. Just just knowing that history. It must be fascinating gathering data and information mm-hmm. uh, through your research and then maybe even finding it funny the, the the ideas we had, like, you know, the earth being flat or things like that. Yes, yes, I know. And I wonder so much, like, what are we saying today that future paleontologists are going to look at and be like, oh, my goodness, where was your head at, guys? Why did you even think that? And it'll probably come in reconstructions, basically. Um, I'm sure we are way off on some of our reconstructions and how they would have actually looked. And I'm not sure what in the future will be invented to allow us to see ancient life a little bit more clearly. But yeah, it it should be fun to see to see how wrong we are sometimes. Mm-hmm. Does that does that mean that you're um, a very kind of open minded person in the sense that when people are very strong minded about their opinions, are you able to just go, well, that's your theory? Yeah, I try to be. I try to be very open-minded about things. I and I try to all not play the devil's advocate, but always try to ask questions to make people really think about what they're saying. Um and but yeah, I definitely try to be really open-minded about things because I know I know with science it's ever changing as soon as something new comes out a new piece of evidence it could change a whole theory from the top down and it could be a very foundational Does that ever in paleontology um yeah I would think so uh you know the bird thing that was pretty big. There was a lot of scientists, even in the 1800s, that were like, you know, some of these dinosaur feet and hands look a lot like dinosaur feet and hands. I wonder if they're related. But at the time, there was such a much bigger idea that dinosaurs were basically just alligators, only bigger, um, that it kind of got lost in the translation. It wasn't until like the 1960s and 70s and the big dinosaur resolution that we were like, oh, 
we get it. Birds are dinosaurs. They are direct descendants of dinosaurs. They are the only living lineage of dinosaurs still left. Um, and so, yeah, that was oh, wow. a big switch, I think, for science. And it's still, I mean, there's still a lot of people that they're like, no, 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 birds are something different. It's like, no, no, birds, birds are dinosaurs, just like humans are apes. Birds are dinosaurs, but we call birds birds and we call humans humans because we have, you know, diver, uh, diverged from our ancient lineages, but we still are them. And, you know, so it, it's still going to take a little bit, I think, for people to get that. And um, I it's funny, I get annoyed with the Jurassic Parks because they don't put feathers on their raptors, and we know raptors are feathered now. But on the flip side, them not doing it, I feel, has let the general public know that they were feathered even more because of all of this just, like, online backlash constantly. Like, Jurassic Park raptors need to have feathers. And then people see that, and they're like, what? And then they look into it, and they're like, oh, they should have feathers. And it's become this like almost like joke that Jurassic Park dinosaurs or raptors don't have feathers and they should. But even with the even with Hollywood doing it wrong, people are still picking up on it and still getting the facts right, even though Hollywood is showing it wrong. So it's it's funny. Yeah, like I, I said, there some things have changed completely. Um are we used to look at dinosaurs as these slow um possibly aggressive like stupid creatures and now we know that no oh, no 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 they were some of them might have been very cunning some of them have brains comparable to dolphins some of them um we have found footprints and all sorts of things of individuals. And we can tell a lot about where they were going, that some species migrated, some species lived in environments we never thought were possible, like the Antarctic. So things are changing. We're, I think we're giving dinosaurs a lot more, or ancient life in general, a lot more life now. They're not like these static dumb creatures of the past they were living breathing cunning individuals that had an entire life and generations millions of years of generations um so i'm, I'm excited for the future of paleontology do you ever have opportunities to switch off from paleontology because i can imagine that kind of almost fantasizing about what the past looked like must be all consuming <laughs> yeah, you know, um I I don't know if I ever switch it off. Um in my 9 to 5, I'm I'm thinking about paleontology, my basically my side job with social media and science communication. I'm talking about the history of life. Do you dream about fossils? <laughs> I don't know if I dream about fossils, but nice. I might. Um Basically, I, I think about like what movies need to be made, <laughs> like all of the Dinotopia series. I just keep waiting for somebody to pick up that series and make them into movies. I'm just like, come on, come on. But yeah, I don't I don't know if it ever really, truly shuts off. If I go to a beach, I'm thinking about how the, the beach sand got there and if there's little fossil forams in that 
beach sand and um are there any old beaches on the coast behind me are there fossils in that i mean it does kind of consume my brain all the time so have you always been like this like were you like that as a kid or have you just got more and more consumed by it the the deeper you've gone into your studies it's definitely become more consuming uh, as, you know, as my career kind of gets bigger, um, but still focusing on paleontology. Yeah, when I was a kid, I could have gone a lot of different ways. A teacher, a regular biologist, not looking at the fossil path, just a geologist, just looking at the rocks and not the fossils. Um, I thought about becoming a volcanologist for a while. So somebody that studies volcanoes, I, I toyed with the idea of glaciology, studying glaciers, um, gemology, studying gems. And, and I always came back to paleontology, though. It always came back to fossils. Why? I don't know. I just think it's, it's so neat that you can find a bone of something in rock. Like, it's kind of the marriage of my two favorite subjects. I love animals. I love them. I love everything about animals. I think they're the most fascinating things on this planet. But I also really like rocks. I have collected rocks ever since I was a little kid. And so if you put those two things together, you basically get paleontology. Because you can't study the bones without first understanding the rocks and knowing what age you're in, what types of rocks have fossils. You know, where do you even start looking for the thing that you want to find? And then once you find it... You need to understand anatomy and biology to be able to talk about these animals as individuals. How how would you put their skeleton back together? Or how would you position them in a life position? And how did that all start? Like, was it something that you just stumbled upon as a kid? Or did someone or some people inspire you? I th- I think it was mainly my dad because he, I think he was a naturalist from the get-go as well. He was always very into the natural world. He collected fossils. He collected um, animal bits and pieces. And he had those collections when I was growing up. And so I would look through his fossils and his arrowheads. And my house was basically a natural history library. We had a book on everything. We had a book on human evolution and human civilizations and um, how the universe formed and space and ancient life. And so like, I would look through his fossils and then I would go grab a book about those fossils. And so I was constantly identifying stuff from his collection. I would go to the dollar store and buy these, they were decorative baskets of seashells, but I would pull them out and organize them by did they have one shell or did they have two shells? And then I would get into my shell ID book and I would organize them by families. And it was ridiculous. Oh my gosh. The nerdiest child. You really sound like you're doing what you were born to do. (laughs) I hope so. What kind of kid were you at school? Like, how did you, because it's clear that you have a real passion for what you do. So how was it, being at school where you're kind of having to separate into you know maths and physics and English and you know what was it like I was a yeah I was a decent student in in most of my subjects I always 
I always wanted to be good at math. I always wanted to be good at physics. And they never came easy for me, which was frustrating. Probably the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced is not being good at physics and having to work way harder at physics than I did have to work at geology, for example. For whatever reason, geology was my language. Like as soon as the professor opened his mouth, I was like, yes. I completely wholeheartedly understand you. And then I would go to my physics class and I'm like, it's just equations. It's right there. Like everything's written out for you. How am I not understanding this? You know, like math and physics are the language of the universe. That's, that's how we know where we are is through these beautiful equations. And, and so that was frustrating. That still is frustrating. To this day, I'm incredibly envious of your math skills and your physics skills. <laughs> so envious oh, um well it didn't actually come easily either <laughs> it was a lot of hard work yeah yeah I mean why did you why did you feel like you wanted to be good at it why couldn't you just say oh well my brain doesn't kind of wrap uh, around this so I'm just gonna sort of leave it I don't know I think it was I'm a little competitive and I like to be good at things I really do I I like to have things come easy to me and I like to excel um and so have just being able to just be like, Oh, whatever. I'm just not good at it. Was it an option for me? And so, I mean, I passed and I got through it, but it wasn't like, it was more of a like, okay, I won. I I passed the class. I, I didn't fail out of it. I didn't give up. All right. That's it's, it's done. You know, it wasn't like, okay, that was very, very hard for me and kind of miserable. So I'm going to do this as a career. I don't think I would have gone through the suffering of knowing that I'm not good at it and then continue on with a career, you know, in physics, for example, when I already love geology and it already came so naturally to me, like kind of why reinvent the wheel for myself and make it harder. But, but even within paleontology, there's physics, you know, with biomechanics, trying to figure out how fast T-Rex worked. I mean, that's physics right there for you. So how did you know that you wanted to spend the rest of your life, I guess, um, in paleontology? Like, was there a day when you were like, I want to do this for the rest of my life? You know, it was probably when I switched majors. So I, I was super into paleontology until I got into high school. And then for whatever reason, I don't think I had a very good science mentor when I was in my later years of high school. And I, I like didn't see paleontology as like a real, a real career. Like people don't actually do this, you know, this is just for the movies. And so I switched my major. um, Well, before I even got into geology, I started college as like uh, a biology, a high school biology teacher. And it was not very much fun. And I remember I took my first like physical sciences course in undergrad as part of my education degree. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. Oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) I'm making this so much harder for myself. And that day after that first class, I went and I changed my major over into geology and paleontology. And it's been that way ever since. And so I, I think what it was, was trying something else and just being miserable with it um, mm. and, and taking one of these geology classes and being like, oh, yeah, this is it. Yep. This is what I was meant to do. At that moment in school, 
was this a switch that you made knowing that you wanted to have a life in the subject or was it literally just a subject switch? So most paleontologists, I feel most young paleontologists, they want to be out in the field. They want to collect dinosaurs in in some faraway land. And yeah, that's a lot of fun. But as I kind of started getting into it, you you kind of figure out that like, oh, maybe maybe dinosaurs isn't what I want to work on. They're they're big and gigantic and they're hard to get out in the field and they take all of this extra work just to deal with them. Maybe I want to work on something smaller that could like fit in my pocket or I could put a hundred of them in one drawer instead of having to build an entire facility to house their bones. Or like I, for, for me personally, I started working for my university geology museum and I was like, oh, I have always liked museums and I've always wondered what the behind the scenes looked like and what's in the collection and how big is the collection and can you just go down there and open drawers like what's the deal and so when I started working at my undergraduate museum that's where I really started to feel it like oh this is kind of where I want to be within the field of paleontology. And so I think it's, it's personable for everyone. You know, Um, I think every single kid, the hook is usually dinosaurs and then they get into it and then they're like, Oh, you know, the plants that the dinosaurs ate are a little bit more fascinating to me than um, something else might've been. Or maybe I, had to take a course on micropaleontology and I loved forams and that's what I want to study is foraminifera. And so I, for each person, I think it's different, but for me, it was really working at my college geology museum and, and figuring out that like, Oh, I want to facilitate research and I want to be the kind of the crypt keeper of this, of bones of ancient bones, if you will. And so it was that for me was was what made me pick my route in the big giant field of paleontology. You sound incredibly unique and it sounds like you really have found your niche. But are there people like you around? Like do you have lots of friends that are very similar in in mindset to you? Um, you know, I work on a university campus and so there are, I am surrounded by brilliant minds everywhere, but paleontology, not so much. I have had friends at the university, um, that did study some, some aspect of ancient life, but they've moved on. Um, so I'm, I'm a little a little lonesome in my field where I'm at, but very, very close to me within a three hours drive in basically any direction I can get to people that are also as passionate about paleontology as myself. But really what I have found is the best support group ever is social media. So I can just get on to Instagram and blammo. I'm surrounded by a bunch of other paleo nerds and we can nerd out about all sorts of stuff new stuff in the news movies that had come out you know and so I never quite feel alone even though I do feel like one of the lone paleontologists in my community right and as a woman in the scientific field what's it like are there many women and what what's what's your world like 
You know, when I first started, I was surrounded by a lot of men, but I have seen that change drastically um, in the past maybe five to ten years. Um, most of the paleontologists that I know today are women, and I don't know if that's just some weird skewedness that has happened in my own world. Like, am I not surrounded by enough paleontologists or do I just choose female scientists to hang out with? I'm not sure how that has happened, but I was, I was looking through some paleontology children's books and every single one that I think I have are written by women. And, um, it's, it's really interesting that I feel like if there is and I could be totally wrong in just this is my personal experience. Um, paleontology is one of the fields that I feel like is growing faster with women in the field. Like, I just I feel like I know so many women paleontologists. But again, I don't know if that's me being biased about surrounding myself with strong women paleontologists more than the field reflecting that. But is it an area of scientific study that is compatible with being female? I think so. Traditionally, just like most sciences, we're always male dominated. But paleontology has has really, I don't know. I think the field aspect of it, I think most people, if you're like, okay, would you do you think that a woman or a man would go out into the field for six months and live a very, very hard life on the in the field somewhere for to collect these bones, do you think that would be a male or a female? And I think both most people would lean towards the male, but there's plenty of women that like to go out in the field and collect and camp for weeks or months on end. Um so I I, I feel like no like I always, I I don't think that any science is more male skewed than female skewed. I feel like every science could be done by anybody, you know. Um, I guess it's just a stereotype, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it is just a stereotype. But um, I haven't gone to a big um, paleontology conference in a while. The the funding just hasn't been in the cards for me. So I think that if I were to go to let's say the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology and see the thousands of people there and see that only about 30, maybe 30% of them are women, it would change my mind. But since I've kind of stayed out of the big group of paleontologists as a whole, and I've kept my smaller friend groups around me, it it maybe has skewed my perspective that that there's still more men, but I feel like paleontology is one of the fields that is rapidly increasing to females, for sure. Cool. And as a woman um, in your science, like, first of all, I'm curious, like, do you get much spare time? And if so, what do you do? Because it sounds like you actually have a career that is your hobby and your passion. Yeah, it is kind of all encompassing. And I am fairly busy with stuff. But, um, you know, when I want to relax, I, I watch funny movies, I, I do enjoy me a, a good comedy flick. And um, I live in a pretty outdoorsy area. So I go hiking and I enjoy the natural world around me. And um, but for the most part, I feel like my hobby is my career and my career is my hobby. And 
when I'm not working at work on a project, I'm at home working on a project of, of some kind related to paleontology. Um, but I, I don't really mind that all too much or, you know, take a trip somewhere. I do like to travel. So I think it's, you know, those basic um, hobby things, travel, hike, outdoors. So what does the future look like for you in this career? What are your aspirations? You know, that has actually changed for me a little bit um, recently due to some fun new opportunities. Um, So I kind of always saw myself as being in a museum, working with specimens behind the scene. But here recently, I have done a lot more science communicating um, and, and being out in the public and and talking about science to people and basically talking about paleontology to people, but the science of paleontology. And I have really enjoyed that a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, to the point that maybe I won't be in a museum forever. Maybe, maybe life will take me a different direction and I'll be more of a, of a liaison, you know, to paleontology and and telling the general public about all these cool things that paleontology has, has discovered or is doing currently or something like that. So I'm not sure where the future will lead, but I am almost a hundred percent certain it will stay in the ancient past for sure. (laughs) I always ask uh, the same question on every episode, which is, what does having it all mean to you? And do you feel that you've achieved everything you've ever wanted? Yes, for the most part, yes. Um, I do have a bucket list, and my bucket list is 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 real geology and paleo based. Um, I would I would love. To, for example, go to the Natural History Museum of London. Most of my bucket list items are big museums in other countries that have something amazing that I need to see before I am a fossil myself. And so, um, <laughs> so I think that there's still things for me to achieve and do. I I feel very fulfilled right now. I'm sure there's something um, in the future that I I don't even know what what it is yet that will make me feel more fulfilled. But I have a really neat career at the moment and I'm starting some new projects. And um, obviously there's always things that I want to do, basically visit a bunch of other museums um, like the Natural History Museum of London um, and get to see these amazing collections, like getting to go to the paleontology collection at the Smithsonian, for example, they have like 40 million specimens or something like that. It's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of stuff and I could never see it in one day, you know? And so, yeah, I, I do feel very fulfilled right now. Yeah. I, it's a little overwhelming. It's a little busy with everything I have going on, but I, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change any of it. What about sort of the other aspects of being a woman, like, you know, maybe having a family one day, like, are these all things that you consider? I didn't for a very long time. Um, When I was in my undergrad, I I had an advisor that sent me down one day and he was just like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, 
well, what's, what's your end goal here? Do you want to get your PhD? And at the time I was like, yeah, I'm going to be this academic. I'm going to be this world renowned field paleontologist. I'm going to do all this great stuff. And he was like, well, when are you going to have kids? And I never really stopped to think about that. I, I never thought that like you had to like stop and plan for it. And, and he was like, well, you're not going to be able to do all this stuff if you have babies. And I was like, really? I mean, there's a lot of female scientists out there that, that have babies, you know, like, but for, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what ladies do. They have, they have babies and they deal with it. But do they have babies and juggle a science career? Oh yeah. I Yes. I think that women can handle it. We are the ultimate, um, Oh, multitaskers. We are built for multitasking. And so being able to raise a family and, and do your job is, I, I don't think that there's anything that is holding somebody back because of, of kids or something. Maybe it'll take you a little bit longer. Maybe you wouldn't be able to spend as much time on something as you would have without kids, but I don't, I personally don't think that it would it would change much. And in my opinion, through some of my friends, it has actually turned them into better students because of time management. So knowing that they have a finite amount of time to do something, a lot of times they get that stuff done because they have to. Um, me personally, I have decided not to have children. And that was a decision that happened a while ago. And so, um, both me and my husband are a hundred percent okay with that. So me, like me personally, that's, that was just my personal choice is I, I don't really want to have kids or be a mom or deal with other people's bodily fluids or anything like that. No, that's just. <laughs> <laughs> From everything I've heard of you today, it does sound like you can really throw yourself 100% into your passion. Yeah. Um, because I think often women that do end up having families have to become pretty selfless for a period of time while they um, tend to uh, someone that's completely dependent on you. So yeah, I mean, there, there obviously is a time of pause, you know, like you, if, if you have a newborn, they kind of control your world until they're not a newborn anymore. Um, and so I can imagine there, there's a slowdown time. There's, uh, you know, it takes you a little bit to get back into it. And so, um, you know, it, it, it could, I, I don't know, because I don't have kids. I'm not a woman with kids in science, so I can't speak from a, a personal perspective. But I can imagine that it's a little bit of a of a readjustment for sure. But if if you're as passionate as I am, I guess, with your field, it should just drive you to want to do more great things because now you have this tiny human that's going to be following in your footsteps. So like, why not be the best, coolest role model ever and be this amazing woman scientist that quote unquote has it all, has the career, has the home life, has everything, you know, um, or whatever. But, but I don't know. I, That'll that'll be something that I'll probably never have to figure out for me personally. I'm very 
uplifted and pumped by your passion for paleontology. Um, I kind of feel like I want to pay more attention to my nephew with his um, little model dinosaurs and things like that. I feel like I've learned so much just listening to you. So as a result of your passion, have you ever experienced kind of any kind of self-doubt or, I don't know, just uh, uncertainty about who you are I mean having interviewed several guests for this show like I would say that you are you you you've definitely come across as being the most certain about what your purpose in life is I must say wow (laughs) high praise (laughs) but have you ever experienced anything that would suggest otherwise um yes I I deal with um imposter syndrome quite often. Um, I got my professional career. I am a staff member. I'm not a student. I I got my job, started my career um, right out of undergrad. I mean, I was actually going to an interview for this position while I was still in undergrad. And after I got it and I came to a research institution as you know, just a bachelor's of science with just a bachelor's of science. Um, a lot of people did not take me seriously for the first, mm, I don't know, maybe five years of my job, I would say, like I was just not taken seriously. And then finally people were like, Oh, she does cool things and she does outreach and like, she's kept it together for this whole time. And so I finally started feeling like I had a little bit of weight to throw around within my department. And then um, a new opportunity arised within science communication. And again, it all come flooding back to me like, oh, I, I don't have an advanced degree in my field. Am I technically the right person that should be telling you about paleontology and um yeah so there's a lot of times that I it's not that I'm unsure about my purpose like I'm definitely here to translate ancient life for people that's my that's my deal but it really comes down to like am I the right person to be doing that and I I suffer through that kind of frequently I try to just push it to the back of my mind be like, no, no, girl, you're doing great. You're fine. But every once in a while, it re- it rears its ugly head. And it's like, oh, there's somebody more qualified than you that could be doing this. That There's somebody with more science street cred, if you will, that could be doing this, you know, but. Well, you know what? Like this whole time, I completely forgot to ask you what your actual qualifications are because <laughs> your enthusiasm bowled me over. Like it was kind of irrelevant what certificates you have with your name on it because um, you're just so passionate about what you do. And I think that, in my humble opinion, that counts for more than uh, you know any any qualifications could. Oh my gosh, that is. That's so sweet of you. I I really that really makes me feel wonderful because I just I just worry about it and and I I worry about somebody calling me out someday and being like, well, you don't have a doctorate. Who are you to tell me anything? I mean, people did that with Bill Nye. Bill Nye, one of the greatest science communicators of my generation. They're like, oh, he just has a master's degree. He's not even a doctorate in, in astrophysics or um 
I can't even remember what his master's degree is off the top of my head on right now. But, you know, like people were giving Bill Nye flack for not having a PhD. And I'm like, it's Bill Nye, you guys. And so, like, that was a huge, like, problem for me to deal with. I'm like, man, Bill Nye is more heavily educated than me. And he had his own show on broadcast TV. And now he's the the president of the Planetary Society. And there's still people giving him flack that he doesn't have a PhD, you know, like it it blows my mind. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just have a bachelor's degree. Oh no. You know? And so I constantly struggle with that, with the idea of going back to school and getting a graduate degree, because what am I doing it for? I have this great career already. I have a potential branching career that's, that could do some really great things someday, you know, and I'm doing it all without a graduate degree, but so who am I getting it for? Am I getting it for the, the the invisible haters out there that think that I need to have more of a degree to tell them about ancient life? Or am I doing it for myself to to be more educated and to have another couple of letters after my name or something, you know? So I do struggle with that quite often. Um, and basically for me right now is I don't have time to be a student again. Everything would suffer. Like, the classes would suffer, the projects would suffer, my career would suffer, my side career would suffer, just because there's only so much of my time that I can devote to something. So right now, I think the the, the advanced degrees are going to have to kind of wait until things cool off, and maybe they never will. I don't know. I don't know. But I do, I, I struggle sometimes with with academia levels if you will yeah well I have to say like after spending an hour with you and kind of hearing your story it just feels like genuine passion means more than anything else thank you so much for sharing your story with me today oh yeah yes this has been wonderful thank you and thank you for your kind words I I I need them sometimes so that was that was nice that was nice no this was fun I'm glad I'm glad we got to chat likewise that's it from my guest this week on silence uh gosh I I honestly didn't think to ask about her qualifications because her passion for the subject of paleontology completely blew me away doesn't that show just by listening to her, that having a genuine interest in something speaks louder than any qualifications you could ever get. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to subscribe and catch you next week on Silence.